Thank you for joining us on the Waymaker Church podcast today. We hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and makes a way for the new and deeper with Jesus Christ in your life. Enjoy. Uh, If you were here last week, you heard Pastor John declare that our vision for this next year is going to be family. So 2022, the vision for Waymaker Church is going to be family. And with that, we're going to partner with uh, family units. We're going to partner with family units to bring them to new levels of spiritual growth, new levels of experiencing Him. But also, we're going to act in new ways as a spiritual family, the family that is the church, and partnering with God for what He has to do for us, with us, in this city. And so I, I would say, I would argue that the story of the Bible is actually a family story. That back in Genesis, God promises Abraham that he will make a great nation out of him, a nation that will bless the world. And the first step to blessing the world, the first step to that nation was Abraham having a son. And that one son turned into a few sons, turned into many families. And so God uses the family to create redemption in the world and build his plan. And now we as a church get to act as a new sort of spiritual family. You know, Jesus even himself refers to those who follow him as his brothers and sisters. So we get to come together and act as this new sort of church family and work together to partner with God in in what he's doing in this world and more specifically what he's doing in this city. We get to take part in what he's doing here as the family of God. And so this series that we're kind of going to work through and starting kind of tonight and working through uh, uh, several more weeks, uh, what we want to do in this series is look at what are the most important things, if we are the family of God, what are the most important things that we need to believe and know in order to live that out properly? The reality is every family, every family unit has core beliefs and core values, whether whether they know it or not, that dictate and inform decisions they make. So like if you're a family and you really value like sports, athletics, success, or whatever, you're going to make decisions that then allow you to experience sports, athletics, success. You, you get what I'm saying? So in a similar fashion as the church, what are the core beliefs, what are the core values that we need to know, that we need to uh, get behind in order for us to live out the life that God has for us? That's the goal of this series. We're going to unpack a number of topics. We're talking about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, you know, really all the things that you would talk about in church and, un- and unpack how those things inform the church on how to live and how we get to take part in that. But tonight, tonight we're going to start from the top, as I mentioned. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about God. And more specifically, we're going to answer the question of what is God like and how does this affect the way I live? See, if we're going to be the family of God, we need to understand who it is this family operates under, who it is that is chief of this family, who is in control and in dictating this family. And I say control and dictate, and more just who is governing, who is loving, who is is leading this family, and that is God. In order for us to understand how to properly follow him and be the family of God, we need to understand what it is that God is like, and then how that might impact the way we live. So that's what we're going to do tonight. So we're going to dive into. I'm really excited for it. But before I get into that, real quick, a, a quick story that will hopefully be entertaining, but will also connect to my overall message. All right, neither service thought that was funny. I thought I'd try it out again, and it didn't work. Again, all right, cool. Anyways, so for two years, for two summers, sorry, two summers while I was in college, uh, I worked as a reading tutor. And uh, a lot of people on staff already, uh, I kind of have a reputation as a nerd on staff. 
And uh, me being a reading tutor definitely does not help that, but whatever, it's okay. There are worse things to be known as. But for two summers, uh, I worked uh, uh, during college, you know, doing that, helping students read. And uh, I worked for this program. I'm not like an expert reading tutor. It's not something I ever planned to do with my life, but I just kind of got this job where uh, this company really had this intense program and really kind of taught you how to lead other people in reading. And the, the number one thing that I learned and that they showed us that we would help students do is the most important thing about reading is picturing. So the number, the number one most important thing, specifically reading comprehension, is the idea of picturing. That in order to actually understand and to be able to like comprehend what you're reading and then recite it to someone else, you need to actually take what's being read and form pictures in your mind so that way you can explain it. We often don't remember facts. We usually remember pictures. Think about it. For those of you who are avid readers, uh, if you have your favorite book, my favorite book growing up was a book called The Heart of a Champion. It was about baseball. It's like every kid's dream. It was like a middle school, high school, or like it was a high school baseball book. It was amazing. I still like picture all the characters. Every, I could tell you the entire story of the book. And it's not because I remember it as facts, but it's because I can like play it in my head like a movie. And so what we would do is we would take these students, we'd teach them and, and help them learn how to picture, uh, how to picture the stories they're reading. And one of the things that, you know, a good tutor would do is not just teach them how to picture, but then would begin to correct their pictures as they tried to develop this skill. You know, the reality is, you know, you have an 11-year-old who's just learning how to picture. They're going to come up with some wild pictures from the story. And so every now and then, let's take a book like Harry Potter. You know, it's 2022. I think it's kind of cool to talk about Harry Potter in church now, but we'll see. But, you know, it's, it's like Harry Potter and Every one of us can picture what Harry Potter looks like, right? He has black hair, he has glasses, you know, scar down his forehead. If you've never even seen the movies or read the books, you probably have some idea of what Harry Potter looks like. Well, if I'm, with a, if I'm with a student and they're like, Harry Potter has blue hair or three arms, like, it's my job to be like, no, 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 no. That's not what the, like, that's not what the story says. What does the story say? How should that change your picture? And the reason why that's important is because one little change in a picture can lead to a number of changes throughout the picture and if you have a bunch of different pictures being changed within a story, well, now you're actually just changing the story. You're not actually tracking what the story is doing. You're creating a whole different story in your mind. And so misinformed pictures lead to a misinformed interpretation of what the story is actually trying to say. So you might be thinking, uh, wow, that was like kind of entertaining. Uh, and why are you talking to us about interpreting and, and uh, picturing and reading and all that? I'd say, good question. Uh, I would argue, I would argue, that when I ask the question, like, what is God like? You know, a lot of you could probably, you know, list me some words or give me some scripture or maybe give me the answer you're supposed to give because we're in a church. But the reality is when I ask the question, what is God like? Every one of us, not just knows things, but actually has created a picture of who God really is to us. We've created a picture of what he is really like based off of a number of things in our life. And if we're not careful that picture can get to be, begin to get distorted. It can begin to change. And for us to think that we create the perfect picture of God is probably not, it's probably not a true thing for us to believe. But what I would argue is, what I would say is, what you picture when you think of God will actually inform how you live. So much like what you picture in a story is going to inform how you interpret that story, whether it's correct or whether it's wrong, for us, how we picture God is going to inform how we live. And some of you might think, like, really? Like, are you sure? Like, I, I mean, I know everything that I'm supposed to know about God. Like, is it really going to change? And what I would say is, like, if you have a picture of God that is distant or uh, you don't trust that he's actually going to be there for you or that he might be vengeful or, like, you know, he's like a God that's standing on, 
top of a mountain throwing lightning bolts, you know? Like, if you, that's a picture of who God is, that's going to change and dictate decisions you make on a day-to-day basis and even how you interact with people. If we are going to be the image bearers of God, but don't understand the image of the one who's created us, then what image are we then going to project if we are his image bearers? And so we need to fight to un- understand and identify where that picture, how that picture is created, what's in that picture, what it looks like, because informing that picture, it's going to then inform how we live. And I really believe one of Satan's goals is to distort that picture. You know, think about it. When, when Satan tries to trip up Adam and Eve, he doesn't just try to convince them to do something wrong. Before he does that, he's, he asks them a question, did God really say, did God really say that you could do that? You couldn't do that? He pokes at the picture of God that they've created. He pokes at, can they trust him? Wait, is, is, did God really say that? Like, why did he say that? Is, is that really fair? And then after poking at it, he convinces them to do something they shouldn't do. And so we need to understand how is Satan working to try to distort our picture? If we live in a fallen world, how has this fallen world shaped the way we view God? And I believe there are a number of things that factor into it, but for tonight, we're just going to talk about four of them real fast. But I believe our picture of God is influenced. Again, it can be, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not all inclusive. But um, for, for tonight, I think it'd be influenced by our family of origin, life experiences, church background, and culture. So family of origin, life experiences, church background, and culture. So first, the family. Uh, again, this is why this series that we're doing, this vision that we're doing is so important because the family is probably the place that impacts us the most and shapes our view of God. And in particular, our, our relationship with our parents, and even more specific, probably our relationship with our dads, with our father. You know, Jesus identified God as his father. And so then it's very natural for us to take what we've experienced with our earthly fathers, whether good or bad, and then project that onto God. It is said that the father to, to you know, son or daughter relationship is the most important in terms of conveying a picture of God to someone else. Now, I say that as someone who has two daughters, I feel the weight of that. You know, I'm like, why save it for college? I'm going to save it for counseling. You know, like, I'm probably going to need that. But the reality is, our family, whatever we've experienced, forms our picture of God. Hopefully, for some of us, it was a good image. I know for me, I, I experienced a really good family. And so I have a very good image of who God was. But my family wasn't perfect. And so there are still pieces of that picture that were distorted by my family. So we need to recognize that. We need to understand that the environment we grew up in helps shape and form our picture for God. Second, our life experiences. This is probably the one that I'm wrestling with the most right now. So the last eight months of uh, my wife and I's life, it's been really difficult. It's been a really hard eight months. And even within that, if I get a little more personal, my relationship with God in this past season has been one of like silence. It's been pretty silent. There's not been a lot of like two-way communication. And uh, I think God is doing that intentionally, kind of what I've discerned and talked to a lot of people. And I, what, what I discerned for my life right now is he's really like pushing me towards endurance and really pushing me towards like continuing to seek after him in new ways despite that silence. But if I'm not careful, that silence and there are difficult circumstances can work together to create a picture of God that's like, man, are you distant? Are you even there? Like everything in my life reflects nothing about you being good right now. Like, what am I supposed to actually believe? Like, am I actually supposed to believe who you are? And a lot of us, things have happened in our past and those things in our past can work 
to help us shape and form what we actually think of God because what God said and what actually happened don't line up. And if we're not careful, that picture can get cracked. That picture can get, get thrown off. And we need to recognize that. We need to actually identify that, pull that up and call it what it is. We need to, we need to actually acknowledge it because then without acknowledging it, we can't actually fight for the picture that God wants us to have. Uh, the last two, church backgrounds. Uh, I won't go too deep into this one. Even if you didn't have a church background, you didn't grow up in church, religious institutions in general, you know, like it's, it's, there's, there's not like a coincidence that people are like, oh, God is angry and, you know, he just gets mad at sinners and then Jesus told him not to and so then I can go, maybe go to heaven one day. Like, there's not, there's not a coincidence that people think that that's what the story of the Bible is about. First of all, it is not. But that's not a coincidence that people think that. And it's from church, church background, you know, church hurt, all of those things. So again, the environment that we grew up in, whether good or bad, can form a picture of what we believe in God. And then finally, culture. Um, when I wrote this one, I honestly thought of Talladega Nights. Um, if you've ever seen that movie, where they're sitting at the dinner table, and uh, Ricky Bobby's like, man, I picture baby Jesus. And the other one's like, oh, I like to picture Jesus with the tuxedo, because like, he's serious, but he's here to party. And it's like, okay, clearly that has nothing to do with what scripture talks about Jesus. And honestly, it's a little sacrilegious. But if we're not careful, like cultural things can get in. And that's obviously a silly example. But, you know, like if you have a picture of God that is like he's wearing, he has a long white beard and he's up in the sky and he's surrounded by angels with halos. Like, I'm going to, I hate to break it to you, but it's actually not in scripture. Uh, not a totally true view of God. And so even culture itself can can impact and can distort the way we picture God. Here's why I'm saying all of this. Here's why I'm saying all of this. And I've honestly mostly been negative, And, you know, there's a reason for that. The reason for that is a distorted picture of God will lead to a wrong way of living. A distorted picture of God will lead to a wrong way of living. And again, I wrestled with that line even. The word wrong. Like, man, you're gonna tell me I'm wrong. You're gonna tell me we're living a wrong life. And I really wrestle with that. But the reality is that God has created a life for us, a way of living that leads to flourishing, that leads to an abundant life. He's, he's laid out a lifestyle that leads to human flourishing. The whole you know, difficulty of our lives is trusting, hey, is your way actually right or is my own way correct? And if Satan can get you to distort your picture, then that question becomes a lot more difficult of trusting, is your way right or is my way right? And so we need to recognize that every one of us, because of we're human and because of our human experiences, our picture is not perfect of who God is. But here's what I think he wants to do. You know, I think God's goal isn't just for you to memorize things about him. His goal isn't to get mad at you for that like broken picture. I actually think in his personality, he's not upset about that. But rather, I think what he wants to do is God wants to redeem the picture we've created. No matter how distorted, no matter how shattered, no matter how broken, God wants to redeem the picture we've created. I don't think there's, I really believe that God doesn't want any part of our lives that are unhealed or broken or destroyed. I really think God's heart is to come into every area of our life, whether big or small, traumatic or just a little bit traumatic, and actually heal that moment and recreate that picture, reform, redeem that picture that we have of him. So that's what I hope for tonight. That's what I hope for tonight. As we answer the question, what is God like? My hope is that as we see the true picture of who God is through his scripture, that at each moment, it'd be an opportunity for God to come in and actually redeem the picture that we have of him. So tonight, 
We're going to be in Exodus 34, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Uh, but real quick, before we jump into that passage, just some, some background about kind of where we're at in this story. Uh, the book of Exodus is a crazy book. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with, you know, the story of, of Israel being rescued out of Egypt. Uh, that's actually only in the first 12 chapters of uh, Exodus. Uh, so it's a really significant moment is that God rescues Israel out of Egypt. But then the whole, like, last two-thirds of that book is actually God forming Israel into the people he wants them to be. So the first movement is God rescuing Israel, and it's a a rescue story. The second movement is God forming Israel, and it's a formation story. It's God is turning Israel into the people that are supposed to be his great nation to bless the world. And in this specific instance, and there's a lot of things that happen. There's like a building project. Uh, There's like some Ten Commandments. There's a lot of craziness. Um, But in this specific passage, Moses is like, God, I want to know your glory. Show me your glory. Will you show yourself? And God's like, yeah, I will. Let's do it. Here's the time. Here's the place. Show up. I'm not going to show you my whole face because that'll kill you, but I'll show you peace in me. That's uh, literally what happens. But uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let's read it. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So again, Moses asked for God to show up. For, for as Moses asked God to see his glory. God shows up, reveals himself, and this is what God says. And so this is God telling us what God is like. Again, I could ask you what you think God is like, and we could all list out things that are actually true, that are probably true. But I think what we need to do is maybe push to a side you know, what we typically would respond in that and listen in this instance, because this, again, this is God telling us what he is like. So we should probably listen to what he has to say about himself because it's probably pretty accurate. In fact, this is actually the most quoted passage of scripture in the Bible by the Bible. This is the most quoted passage of scripture because it is the most accurate account and description of who God is because it's him revealing himself to us. Now, uh, I'm going to kind of work through this passage bit by bit. I'm really only going to be able to hit like the top layer of this. If you want to know more about this passage, there's actually a book. It's called God Has a Name. Read it like six months from now when you forget that I preached about this. If you've read it tomorrow, you'll be like, oh, all right. You know, that's where you got this from. Um, so it's a great book. If you want more in-depth study, I would go there. So a couple things really quick before we dive into everything in this passage. The first is that when we see the phrase, the Lord, the Lord, what we need to know is that's actually the word Yahweh. It's actually God's name, Yahweh. And so God in Exodus 3 shows up to Moses in a burning bush, burning bush and declares that I am Yahweh, you know, the great I am. And he gives himself that name. And in Hebrew culture, uh, again, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, it was written in Hebrew. So it's a different culture. It's ancient, ancient Hebrew literature, different rules. But in Hebrew culture, names were really significant. So like for me, you call me Tanner, but the meaning of Tanner has very little to do with my life. Tanner literally means leather worker. Again, uh, I probably was never going to be that, no matter how many times you play in my life over and over again, I'll probably never be a leather worker. But in Hebrew culture, your name wasn't just something that people called you, but rather it revealed your calling. It revealed 
who you were, the aspects about you. So what we're having, what's happening here is God's name, God by revealing his name, is painting a picture of what he is like. He's not just telling Moses, hey, here's what you should call me. And again, there's a whole lot that we could talk about in Yahweh that we're not going to get into because there's just a whole lot there we could unpack. But what we need to know is that God's name is painting a picture of what he is like. And so what I want to do is in verses 6 and 7 is actually break down each piece of it and show us how that piece is actually displaying a picture of who God is, of what God is like. So I'm going to work through verse 6 and 7, and each piece is going to reveal a different picture of what God is like. So I'm going to read verse 6 again, if you guys want to look back. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Real quick, one thing I want to point out really fast is that oftentimes when we describe God, we describe his attributes or his abilities. Uh, In this case, God doesn't describe his abilities, but how he relates to his people. Every single one of those words is a relational word. It is a word about how he relates to someone else, which means that God, first and foremost, is a relational being. And so we ask, who does God want to be in relationship with? Well, he wants to be in relationship with us. So all of these words are words about how he relates to us, relates to his people. And so the first section that I want to break down is compassionate and gracious. And what we see with compassionate and gracious is compassionate and gracious are painting a picture of a mother's love for a child. So a lot of us, when we think about God, we think about God as father. And that is true. Jesus identifies God as father. But these words, compassionate and gracious, are actually painting a picture of a mother loving her child. So the word compassionate is actually a feeling word. It's a feeling word, which means the first thing God wants us to know is that he has feelings for us. And then gracious is an action word. And so God feels for us, and then his love and graciousness actually wants to do something about those feelings. And so when I think about this, I think about my daughter with our two girls. Um, or I'm sorry, my wife with our two girls. Um, yes, that was the correct way of saying that. So when one of my daughters cries, mainly my three-month-old Joy, when she cries, my first thought is, all right, what do I need to do to get you back to sleep so then I can get back to sleep? That is my motivation. You know, I love her, but that's my motivation. My wife hears, hears Joy cry and is like, what is wrong? I feel that, like, she feels that there's something wrong. She feels for my daughter. And then she, out of graciousness, does something to actually correct whatever is wrong, making her cry. You know, she's motivated by compassionate and graciousness. Like, I see her get on my kids' levels and is, like, compassionate and gracious with them. And so God is like that with us. He is tender in nature, like a mother is tender with their children. And again, if what you experienced wasn't great love from a mother, like, that might change your picture of God. Because one of the aspects of God is that he is tender in how he feels and how he cares for his people. How different is that picture than the one that we might have created? You know, a God that might be cold or distant or hard or tough, strong and powerful. But in Hebrew culture, order is really important. So when we're reading the Bible in the Hebrew language, they don't have bold or italics. And so the order of something is really important. It's showing what is the most important. 
And so the first thing God wants us to know is that he's compassionate and gracious, that he loves us like a mother loves his child. Is that how he feels? Again, that's a, that's a very different picture than the picture that a lot of us create of God, it's that he feels for us. He feels towards us. And then graciousness, he's willing to do something about it. So that's our first picture, a mother loving their child. The second one, it gets a little weird, but it, it, don't worry, it's great. So slow to anger, that phrase, slow to anger, is, is literally painting a picture of a long nose. So stay with me. Uh, for Hebrews, for, for the Hebrew language, uh, whenever someone was angry, they were described as ha of nose. So if you ever think about being, when you've been mad, or you've ever been like, you know, and I'm like, a, I'm a really healthy human being that always expresses my emotions in a great way. So I never walk around my house like, <sighs> my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm angry. She's like, yeah, obviously. You're like, why are you breathing like that? You know, like I'm hot of nose. I'm mad. I was just kidding. I do that all the time, literally. It's not a good thing. But God, he's slow to anger, which means he's long of nose. So he doesn't have a hot nose of anger that burns towards us really fast. He's long nose, which means it takes a long time for his anger to, his anger to burn out of us. The, the better picture is a deep breath. It's like a... Like, have you ever been encountered a situation and your first moment was like anger, but you're like, you know what? Like, that is God's response to us. He's patient in his response to us. He's not fast in responding to his people. He's slow to anger. He has a long nose of patient love for his people. Again, how different is that in the picture we might create? You know, a lot of us think that like the moment we off step, God's like, well, hey, there you are. What are you doing? Come on, get back together. Get it right. God is slow in his anger. He's slow in his approach to us. In fact, he gives us so many instances and so many chances and, and opportunities to change, to make it right. He gives us opportunity after opportunity. It's because he's slow to anger. He has a long nose. So the first picture, not literally. I want, I want to make that clear. God doesn't literally have a long nose. thought I'd say that. So the first picture is a mother loving their child. The second is God is long of nose. He's patient with his people. The third, and this is the, the kind of the last section in verse six, is the words love and faithfulness. So really common words in the church, but love and faithfulness are painting a picture of a solid boulder, of a solid boulder. Again, if I was to ask, if we were to like walk around, if we had an open mic and we were all going to say what we thought God was like, I guarantee you love and faithfulness would come up all the time. Like 90% of worship songs have something about God being loving and faithful. We all know that. You're like, all right, Tina, move on. But in this instance, the words love and faithfulness are talking about loyalty and commitment. In other areas of scripture, this phrase love and faithfulness can be talked about, God, I can stand on your love and faithfulness. I can trust in your love and faithfulness. Much like a boulder, like a strong foundation. Think about it. A boulder is going nowhere. doesn't matter what's going on around it. I guess maybe an earthquake, so there's one hole in the argument. But, you know, if most of the time a boulder stays in the same place, it's going nowhere. God's love and commitment is like that boulder. His loyalty towards us is going nowhere. He's unchanged. He's unwavering. We can stand on it like a firm foundation. So again, we get a God who is like a mother, a loving mother towards his child, who's long of nose, slow to anger, and is like a big boulder, something we can stand on and trust that's going nowhere, that's unwavering in his love and faithfulness, his loyalty and commitment. Again, how different is that than the picture we might create? 
of a God who, is he gonna abandon us? Is he there? Do I actually trust he's gonna come through? Can I actually trust his word to be true? But he tells us here, no, he's like, I'm love and I'm faithful. I'm loyalty and I'm committed to the end. I'm like a boulder that you can stand on and that you can trust. Again, that is a picture of what God is like. So, so far through verse six, again, we have a loving mother. We have a long nose, patient, slow to anger. And we have like a boulder in his love and commitment and loyalty, unwavering. The final picture in verse seven, which is definitely the least exciting verse of this quick passage. But it's something we need to talk about because this fourth, this fourth image actually completes the image of who God is and kind of has this full picture of what his love was like and how he deals with us. So we're going we're to wrestle through it. So verse seven, it says, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And this is where it gets weird. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Again, you know, if I was like a PR person, I'd be like, man, started off great. Maintaining love to thousands. Awesome. Go with that. And forgiving wickedness, rebellion, said, great. And then as soon as it goes, yet does not, you know, stop it there. You know, God's PR person, don't, don't go there. You know, just stop there. It's perfect. It's beautiful. But no, that's not what he does. He doesn't stop there. He continues and lets us know that part of his character is that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And so what verse 7 is painting a picture of is it's painting a picture of a parent lovingly disciplining their child. So we're going to backtrack a little bit. We're going to backtrack a little bit. So maintaining love to thousands. Let's talk about God. God actually protects his love for his people. And one of the ways that he protects his love for his people is he forgives them because they're constantly trying to break away from that love. And so he forgives their wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But if anyone here is a parent or has children, knows that you can protect your children, that you can forgive your children. But one of the worst things you can do for your children is let bad behavior go unchecked. Do not correct them when they're not acting right. You know, to not discipline your child. And so for God, what he is saying is a part of his love, an aspect of who he is, is that he doesn't let sin go unchecked. So for years, I thought that, you know, this is kind of facetious, that I was judgmental, but for years, I was like, man, parents who don't discipline, they're lazy. Yeah. And then I had kids and I was like, I was super wrong. This is way harder than I thought. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, the last thing that I want to do after a long day of work, the last thing I want to do is sit down and like deal with the chaos that my daughter has created. You know, I have a toddler. Her name's Eden. She's amazing. Probably seen her run around going crazy in this building before. But yeah, we're in like full toddler mode right now, which means chaos every day. And the last thing I want to do is deal with it. It's like, you know what? Let's turn on that show. Let's give you that piece of, let's give you the cookie. You know, whatever. I'm going to turn around and see you didn't throw that thing. But no, that's not loving. You know, that's not loving. That's actually selfish. Out of love, actually step into that chaos and deal with whatever it is she created. If I gave my daughter whatever she wanted all the time and let her do what she wanted all the time, that would not be loving. That would actually lead her into chaos. And so in a similar way, God doesn't just let us go unchecked and do whatever we want. Yes, he forgives us, but he also reveals our sin and our sin has consequences. And he deals with us in discipline because he loves us enough to not let us go down a path that's going to create more destruction, more chaos. He loves us enough to bring us momentary pain of revealing that sin. 
and hopes from preventing us from creating more pain and more chaos. And that's where the generational aspect comes into us. Is the reality is no sin is left to just that person. In fact, within the family, generational sin is a thing. Meaning we are all products of generational sin and every one of us is capable of passing on generational sin. So if you want to punish the generation you know, after you and the generation after that, you know, to punish those generations would be to leave the guilty unpunished. To leave those currently who are acting wrong unpunished. Because eventually it's going to get passed down from generation to generation. But to make generational impact, God reveals our sin. He corrects us. He disciplines us like a loving parent does and hopes that we might come back to him, reconcile, and redeem. So again, this full picture of God is a loving mother who cares for his children and cares for her children. A God who is long of nose, who is patient, who is slow to anger. A God who is like a boulder, whose love and his faithfulness is something that we can stand on, that we can trust. It's going nowhere. And finally, it's a God who doesn't let the guilty go unpunished, who is just, who deals with the chaos that we create and does so in a loving way. If I could summarize all this just in one line, which you're all probably like, please do, is that God is loving. He's loving in his compassion. He's loving in his grace. He's faithful. He's faithful in his patience, his, his love, his loyalty, his commitment. And he's just. He's just in dealing with his people to create human flourishing. Again, if he leaves us unchecked, it creates this destruction, not flourishing. And so, so far tonight, I've been pretty much up here. I've been pretty high, kind of up in the clouds. And, you know, if I like left at this point, you'd be like, all right, cool. I have some like really cool things to recite if someone asks me, what is God like? But I want to do more than just, you know, give you some ideas, some things that you can talk about, some things you can share with somebody else. But my hope is that actually this idea of God being these way, these pictures would get into the fiber of who we are. And so I just want to leave you with a couple practical applications of how to take this from being something that we just know something about to something that we actually fight for in creating and reshaping our picture. And so what I want to say to you guys is daily worship and meditate on God's name. Take after the example of Jesus, who when the disciples asked him to pray, the first line, one of the first lines is, May your name be great, or hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. That's Jesus recognizing and meditating and worshiping on God's name. Well, what is God's name? We just talked about it. The name that God gives to us is Yahweh. The name God gives himself is Yahweh. Well, what does it mean for God to be Yahweh? It means he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You know, all of that, what we talked about. And so I encourage you on a daily basis, fight for your picture of God by sitting and dwelling on this verse. Create space during your day to just sit and be like, God, you're compassionate and gracious. You're compassionate and gracious. And then reflect on how he has shown up in those ways in your life. We need to daily fight for the picture that we're creating of God. And we can do that by daily worshiping and meditating. The second piece of application, a potential next step from somebody that I want to give tonight, is confess hidden sin and embrace his correction. Again, God is in the sin-revealing business, meaning he's willing to reveal sin if he has to. And so I, I just believe that there's probably someone here who has a hidden sin. And I just want to say, you, like, say to you is that 
if you're not careful, that will get found out. And that's actually my story. A piece of my story is that for years, I made a, a couple poor financial decisions and hid it from my wife for a long time. And I would love to say that I confessed it and it was like this beautiful moment of confession and, you know, like God, God has redeemed that situation. You know, that was years ago. That's not necessarily what we walk through now, but I didn't confess it. I was found out. God revealed it, which is really painful. But I look back at that moment and I realize that's one of the most loving things God ever did for me. That God loved me enough to not let me continue down a path of lying or hiding from my wife, but revealed it and gave me an opportunity. It was, it was really painful in the moment, but gave me an opportunity to begin to go down a different path with my life. And so I stand up, I stand up here today as someone who has experienced the loving discipline of God and I'm a testimony of how he will redeem those situations. So if you're here and you have that hidden sin, reveal it and don't run away from God's correction, but embrace it because his correction will lead to his redemption, his restoration. But first he needs to correct that thing. And finally, uh, and kind of as kind of, kind of a call to response is, again, every one of us has created this picture of God. And every one of us have experienced fallen things difficult circumstances, have encountered bad people, and those things have chipped, cracked, and misshapen our picture. And like I said, I think God really wants to redeem the picture that we've created. He wants a whole collective of people who have such a beautiful image of who He is, who can go out and display that beautiful image to those who are around them. But in order to do that, He needs to come in and He needs to heal those moments that created that brokenness. And so what I would invite you to do, tonight, to do tonight is just create that space, invite him in, ask him to reveal where that picture has gone wrong, where that picture has been broken and ask him to come in and heal that situation, to come in and actually bring restoration to that situation, to sit with you in that situation. And maybe it is you need to talk to somebody else about it and create that space. But I just really believe God wants to redeem the hurt in our lives and how that hurt has changed how we view him. And so you guys can stand. We're about to get ready to worship. But as we worship, my hope is that we would create this space where we would allow God to flood in, to come in and begin to heal those pictures, heal the hurt in us. Thank you for joining us. And a special thank you to those of you who give generously to Waymaker Church. It is because of you that our ministry is possible. Visit waymaker.church to give now. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe. You can also share it with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Now go make a way.